she made clear that devotion to her Immaculate Heart is both a refuge and the way that leads to God. During the apparition of August 19th, which was postponed due to the imprisonment of the shepherd children, the Virgin confirmed her instruction regarding the need of praying the rosary and offering many sacrifices for the salvation of souls. She also promised that during the last apparition, I quote, I will perform a miracle so that all may believe. On September 13th, Our Lady once again confirmed the children in the practice of praying the rosary and offering sacrifices for the salvation of souls and peace in the world. She renewed the promise of a miracle. She declared, in October, Our Lord will come, as well as Our Lady of Sorrows and Our Lady of Mount Carmel. St. Joseph will appear with the child Jesus to bless the world. Faithful to Our Lady's promise, on October 13th, after asking that a chapel be built to her honor as Our Lady of the Rosary and urging the daily praying of the Rosary and repentance and reparation for sins, God provided the miracle of the Son to confirm faith in the message which Our Lady brought to the world at Fatima. Time does not permit a fuller meditation on these other apparitions. I now return to the third part of the secret or message of Fatima. Without entering into a discussion regarding whether the third part of the secret has been fully revealed, it seems clear from the most respected studies of the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima that it has to do with the diabolical forces unleashed upon the world in our time and entering into the very life of the church, which leads souls away from the truth of the faith and therefore from the divine love flowing from the glorious pierced heart of Jesus. Frere Michel de la Sainte Trinité, in his monumental study of the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima, writes the following regarding the third part of the secret, or what is often called the third secret. Take a look at this. This is Cardinal Burke talking in 2017 about demonic forces entering the church at that time in 2017. Hard to believe that so long ago. This was given at Rome Life Forum, a conference that LifeSite has been running since 2014, actually. Do you know that we're running another one this year, October 31st and November 1st? That is right at the end of this horrific synod on synodality. October 31st, November 1st, 2023. Come join us in Rome. Go to romelifeforum.com for more information. Watch Cardinal Burke give this snippet on demonic forces entering into the Vatican from his talk at Rome Life Forum in 2017. In short, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary undoubtedly refers much more to the third secret than even the second. For the recovery of peace will be a gift from heaven, but it is not properly speaking the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Her victory is of another order, supernatural, and then temporal by addition. It will first be the victory of the faith, which will put an end to the time of apostasy and the great shortcomings of the church's pastors. As horrible as are the physical chastisements associated with man's disobedient rebellion before God, infinitely more horrible 
are the spiritual chastisements for they have to do with the fruit of grievous sin, eternal death. As is clear, only the faith which places men in the relationship of unity of heart with the sacred heart of Jesus through the mediation of the immaculate heart of Mary can save man from the spiritual chastisements which rebellion against God necessarily brings upon its perpetrators and upon the whole of both society and the church. The teaching of the faith in its integrity and with courage is the heart of the office of the church's pastors, the Roman pontiff, the bishops in communion with the See of Peter, and their principal co-workers, the priests. For that reason, the third secret is directed with particular force to those who exercise the pastoral office in the church. Their failure to teach the faith in fidelity to the church's constant teaching and practice, whether through a superficial, confused, or even worldly approach, and their silence endangers mortally in the deepest spiritual sense the very souls for whom they have been consecrated to care spiritually. The poisonous fruit of the failure of the church's pastors is seen in a manner of worship, of teaching, and of moral discipline which is not in accord with divine law. In recent history, for instance, Blessed Paul VI made reference to the incursion of Satan into the most sacred aspect of the life of the church, her divine worship, in his homily for the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul in 1972, reflected at some length upon the situation of the church in the world during the years immediately following upon the close of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council. Using an image with a clear reference to the sacred liturgy, he spoke of his sense that, and I quote, through some fissure, the smoke of Satan has entered into the temple of God. He went on to reflect on how the abuse of the temple of God reflected a more general crisis in the teaching and practice of the faith. He spoke of a pervasive doubt, uncertainty, restlessness, dissatisfaction, and dissent, and of a loss of trust in the church, coupled with a ready placement of trust in secular prophets, who speak through the press or social movements, seeking from them the formula for a true life. He noted how the state of uncertainty prevailed within the church herself, observing that after the Second Vatican Council it was believed that a day of sunlight had dawned upon the church, while in fact, and I quote him, a day of clouds, storms, darkness, wandering, and uncertainty had arrived. He commented that the church seemed to plumb the abysses rather than to seek to fill them. Blessed Pope Paul VI and Pope St. John Paul II addressed the increasing gravity of the incursion of an atheistic materialism, secularism, and relativism in the church with the call for a new evangelization. For blessed Pope Paul VI, the new evangelization is the fundamental form of proclaiming the truth of Christ in our time. In his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Nunciandi, on evangelization in the modern world, of December 8, 1975, he described evangelization as the church's deepest inspiration, that which comes to her directly from the Lord. 
to the whole world, to all creation, right to the ends of the earth. After reflecting on the first proclamation of the gospel, which is addressed to those who have never heard the good news of Jesus, or to children, he declared, but as a result of the frequent situations of de-Christianization in our day, it also proves equally necessary for innumerable people who have been baptized but who live quite outside Christian life. For simple people who have a certain faith but an imperfect knowledge of the foundations of that faith. For intellectuals who feel the need to know Jesus Christ in a light different from the instruction they receive as children and for many others. The degree of secularization about which Pope Paul VI spoke with concern in 1975 has only increased exponentially, also due to a grave impoverishment or even lack of adequate catechesis in the church during the past five and more decades. The pontificate of Pope St. John Paul II, in fact, may be rightly described as a tireless call to recognize the church's challenge to be faithful to her divinely given mission in a completely secularized society and to respond to the challenge by means of a new evangelization. A new evangelization consists in teaching the faith through preaching, catechesis, Catholic education, and all forms of communication. Two, celebrating the faith in divine worship and in prayer and devotion, which are the extension of divine worship into every moment of daily living. And three, living the faith by the practice of the virtues. All of this as if for the first time, that is with the engagement and energy of the first disciples and of the first missionaries to our native places. In his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Christi Fidelis Laici, on the vocation and the mission of the lay faithful in the church and in the world, Pope St. John Paul II described the contemporary situation of the church in a world which is increasingly secularized, marked by a pervasive and constant spread of relativism, which, in his words, inspires and sustains a life lived as if God did not exist. Not by chance, in Evangelium Vitae, addressing the culture of death which tragically marks a totally secularized society, he made reference to such a way of living in ignorance of God and of the order with which he has created the world and above all man. He declared, by living as if God did not exist, man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. He went on to describe the situation which inevitably leads to a practical materialism which breeds individualism, utilitarianism, and hedonism, and in which man exchanges his very being for material possessions and pleasures, rejects suffering as meaningless, and views his body and sexuality in abstraction from his person. To remedy the situation of a totally secularized culture, the saintly pontiff observed, a mending of the Christian fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. He hastened to add that if the remedy is to be effected, the church herself must be evangelized anew. Fundamental to understanding the radical secularization of our culture is to understand also 
how much this secularization has entered into the life of the church herself. Pope John Paul II declared, but for the mending of the Christian fabric of society to come about, what is needed is first to remake the Christian fabric of the ecclesial community itself present in these countries and nations. Pope St. John Paul II therefore called upon the lay faithful to fulfill their particular responsibility, that is to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only fully valid response consciously perceived and stated by all in varying degrees to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. Making more specific the call, he clarified that the fulfillment of the responsibility of the lay faithful requires that they know how to overcome in themselves the separation of the gospel from life to take up again in their daily activities in family, work, and society an integrated approach to life that is fully brought about by the inspiration and strength of the gospel. Before the grave situation of the world today, we are, Pope St. John Paul II reminded us, like the first disciples who, after hearing St. Peter's Pentecost discourse, asked him, what must we do? Even as the first disciples faced a pagan world which not, had not even heard of our Lord Jesus Christ, so too we face a culture which is forgetful of God and hostile to his law written upon every human heart. Before the great challenge of our time, Pope St. John Paul II cautioned us that we will not save ourselves and our world by discovering some magic formula or by inventing a new program. In unmistakable terms, he declared, no, we shall not be saved by a formula, but by a person and the assurance which he gives us, I am with you. He reminded us that the program by which we are to address effectively the great spiritual challenges of our time is Jesus Christ alive for us in the church. He explained, the program already exists. It is the plan found in the gospel and in the living tradition. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has its center in Christ himself, who is to be known, loved, and imitated so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity and with him transform history until its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a program which does not change with shifts of times and cultures, even though it takes account of time and culture for the sake of true dialogue and effective communication. In short, the program leading to freedom and happiness is for each of us the holiness of a life lived in Jesus Christ. Pope St. John Paul II, in fact, cast the entire pastoral plan of the church in terms of holiness. He explained himself thus, in fact, to place pastoral planning under the heading of holiness is a choice filled with consequences. It implies the conviction that since baptism is a true entry into the holiness of God through incorporation into Christ and the indwelling of his spirit, it would be a contradiction to settle for a life of mediocrity marked by a minimalist ethics and a shallow religiosity. To ask catechumens, do you wish to receive baptism, means at the same time to ask them, 
do you wish to be holy? It means to set before them the radical nature of the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 48. Pope St. John Paul II taught us the extraordinary nature of our ordinary life because it is lived in Christ and therefore produces in us the incomparable beauty of holiness. He declared, the time has come to repropose wholeheartedly to everyone this high standard of ordinary Christian living. The whole life of the Christian community and of Christian families must lead in this direction. You know that here on LifeSite, we love to tell amazing stories. There are a few so heroic and amazing as the story we're about to tell you that's coming soon. You gotta watch this. When I was in seminary, I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen. He talked about a nuclear man, you know, and people who grew up in the 1980s were kind of formed by that immediate and constant threat of nuclear annihilation. My generation has grown up, you know, under the specter of priestly sexual abuse. What say you, Mr. Foreperson? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty? I think that for many of us, that has also been all-encompassing. You know, I mean, I entered the seminary in January of 2004, and it's basically been there for me from in the beginning. One priest's sacrifice for many priestly sins. The story of Father John Hollowell. Coming soon from LifeSite News. Seeing in us the daily conversion of life by which we strive to meet the high standard of holiness, the high standard of ordinary Christian living, our brothers and sisters will discover, discover the great mystery of their own ordinary life in which God daily showers upon them his immeasurable and ceaseless love, calling them to holiness of life in Christ, his only begotten Son. The family is the first place of education in the Christian life, the first place in which the daily conversion of life to Christ, under the guidance and protection of his and our mother, takes place. Regarding Christian marriage in the family and the call to evangelization, Pope St. John Paul II, in his 1981 post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the family, Familiaris Consortio, declared that the Christian family, in fact, is the first community called to announce the gospel to the human person during growth and to bring him or her through a progressive education and catechesis to full human and Christian maturity. Christian education in the family and in the school introduces children and young people in an ever more profound way into the tradition, into the great gift of our life in Christ in the church, handed down to us faithfully in an unbroken line through the apostles and their successors. Education, if it is to be sound, that is, for the good of the individual and society, must be especially attentive to arm itself against the errors of atheistic materialism, secularism, and relativism, lest it fail to communicate to the succeeding generations 
the truth, beauty, and goodness of our life and of our world as they are expressed in the unchanging teaching of the faith in its highest expression in divine worship, prayer, and devotion, and in the holiness of life of those who profess the faith and worship God in spirit and in truth. The agents of the spread of atheistic communism understood very well that the most effective means of accomplishing their mission was to infiltrate schools and even seminaries. Education which takes place first in the home and is enriched and supplemented by schools and above all by truly Catholic schools is directed fundamentally to the formation of good citizens and good members of the church. Ultimately, it is directed to the happiness of the individual which is found in right relationships and has its fulfillment in eternal life. It presupposes the objective nature of things to which the human heart is directed if it, if, if it is trained to follow a correctly formed conscience. It seeks an ever deeper knowledge and love of the true, the good, and the beautiful. It forms the individual to this fundamental pursuit throughout his or her lifetime. Today, the church is beset by confusion and error about even some of her most fundamental and constant teachings. As a secular agenda continues to advance in the world, promoting the attack upon innocent and defenseless human life, upon the integrity of marriage and its incomparable fruit, the family, and upon the very freedom of man to worship God in spirit and in truth, the church herself seems confused and even at times indulgent toward a mundanity which rebels against God and his law. The world has great need for the church to announce the faith, the truth of Christ, with clarity and courage. But sadly, too often, she remains silent or seems uncertain regarding the truth and its steadfast application to daily life in the world. At the same time, the confusion which remains uncorrected generates profound divisions among individual bishops and conferences of bishops, among priests, and among the faithful in general. The most fundamental and important moral questions receive a different response from the pastors of the church in different places. A new evangelization has been confused with a sentimental embrace of a secular culture which fails to call the culture to conversion and to give witness to conversion by the integrity of life of Christians. Not without reason, the faithful find themselves confused and disoriented. Such a situation leads also to a sense of abandonment. Reflecting on the pressing need to respond to the grace of a new evangelization, we see how timely the apparitions and message of Our Lady of Fatima remain. At Fatima, the Mother of God, our Mother, provides for us the means to go faithfully to her divine Son and to seek from him the wisdom and strength to bring his saving grace to a profoundly troubled world. She provides six particular means for us to, empl to employ in addressing the situation. She asks us as individual members of the faithful to pray the rosary each day, to wear the brown scapular, 
to make sacrifices for the sake of saving sinners, to make reparation for the offenses to her immaculate heart by means of the first Saturday devotion, and to convert our own lives evermore to Christ. Lastly, she asks the Roman pontiff, in union with all the bishops of the world, to consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart. By these means, she promises that her immaculate heart will triumph, bringing souls to Christ, her son. Turning to Christ, they will make reparation for their sins. Christ, through the intercession of his virgin mother, will save them from hell and bring peace to the whole world. While the secret of Fatima is realistic about the great evils which beset the world and the church, it is fundamentally a message of hope in the victory of the sacred heart of Jesus through the immaculate heart of Mary. The victory of grace, however, means for us the daily conversion to Christ, purification from sin in our lives through prayer and penance, and reparation for sins committed. Visiting the shrine of Our Lady of Fatima on May 13, 1982, the first anniversary of the attempt on his life, Pope St. John Paul II declared, <clears throat> Today, John Paul II, successor of Peter, continuer of the work of pious John and Paul, and particular heir of the Second Vatican Council, presents himself before the mother of the Son of God in her shrine at Fatima. In what way does he come? He presents himself reading again with trepidation the motherly call to penance, to conversion, the ardent appeal of the heart of Mary that resounded at Fatima 65 years ago. Yes, he reads it again with trepidation in his heart because he sees how many people and how many societies, how many Christians, have gone in the opposite direction to the one indicated in the message of Fatima. Sin has thus made itself firmly at home in the world, and denial of God has become widespread in the ideologies, ideas, and plans of human beings. But for this very reason, the evangelical call to repentance and conversion uttered in the mother's message remains ever relevant. It is still more relevant than it was 65 years ago. It is still more urgent. The successor of Peter presents himself here also as a witness to the immensity of human suffering, a witness to the almost apocalyptic menaces looking over the nations and mankind as a whole. He is trying to embrace these sufferings with his own weak human heart as he places himself before the mystery of the heart of the mother the Immaculate Heart of Mary. In the name of these sufferings and with awareness of the evil that is spreading throughout the world and menacing the individual human being, the nations and mankind as a whole, Peter's successor presents himself here with greater faith in the redemption of the world, in the saving love that is always stronger, always more powerful than any evil. My heart is oppressed when I see the sin of the world and the whole range of menaces gathering like a dark cloud over mankind. But it also rejoices with hope 
as I once more do what has been done by, by, by my predecessors when they consecrated the world to the heart of the mother, when they consecrated especially to that heart those peoples which particularly need to be consecrated. During, doing this means consecrating the world to him who is infinite holiness. This holiness means redemption. It means a love more powerful than evil. No sin of the world can overcome this love. Once more this act is being done. Mary's appeal is not for just once. Her appeal must be taken up by generation after generation in accordance with the ever new signs of the times. It must be unceasingly returned to. It must be taken up, ever taken up anew. The words of St. John Paul II make clear the perennial importance of the message of Fatima, the giving of one's whole heart together with the Immaculate Heart of Mary to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and thus the commitment to become an ever more effective agent of the sorely needed new evangelization of our culture. Attention to the maternal direction of Our Lady at Fatima draws souls to Christ who will give them the sevenfold gift of the Holy Spirit for the conversion of their lives and the transformation of a culture of death into a civilization of love. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one-ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com, where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. In what regards the message of Fatima, I cannot fail to draw attention to the particular service of Portugal, and above all, of the bishops of Portugal, in the bringing of Our Lady's maternal guidance and protection to the whole world. Our Lady promised, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved. The secret or message of Fatima was first entrusted to the Bishop of Leria for the sake of the whole world. Rightly, the world looks today to Portugal, so favored by the apparitions at Fatima, to bring Our Lady's message of trust in the victory of her Immaculate Heart, which is indeed the victory of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. The world looks to Portugal for the sign of the faith, which alone brings about the victory of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. In conclusion, let us not give way to discouragement before the tumultuous situation in which the, church, the world and the church finds itself in our times. Rather, let us heed once again the maternal direction of the Virgin of Fatima for a new evangelization of the church and thus of the world. Let us be invested with the scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and pray daily the Holy Rosary for the conversion of sinners and for peace in the world. 
let us center all of our labors upon participation in the sacrifice of the Mass, the act of thanksgiving after each Holy Mass and throughout the day, Eucharistic adoration, and the daily praying of the Holy Rosary, by which our Lord, through the intercession of Our Lady, transforms our lives and our world. Let us make reparation for the many and grievous offenses against the immeasurable and unceasing love of God for us by practicing the devotion of the first Saturdays and by embracing suffering and sacrifice for the love of all our brothers and sisters, especially of those in most need. Let us consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and work for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Certainly, Pope St. John Paul II consecrated the world, including Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary on March 25, 1984. But today, once again, we hear the call of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart in accord with her explicit instruction. The requested cons consecration is at once a recognition of the importance which Russia continues to have in God's plan for peace and a sign of profound love for our brothers and sisters in Russia. May the Mother of God and Mother of Divine Grace lead many souls to unite their hearts to her Immaculate Heart in the total consecration of their hearts to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. As the Mother of God teaches us, there is no sure way to grow daily in the spiritual life and thus to become rivers of living water for a world which thirsts so much for the truth and love which are only found in the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So may the truth and love of Christ animate our homes and make them a light of hope for all who struggle against the forces of materialism and relativism. The Immaculate Heart of Mary will triumph over any darkness in our hearts. Through her triumph in our hearts and in the hearts of many, through the triumph of the faith, the Immaculate Heart of Mary will also triumph over the great darkness of our time by leading souls to the truth and love of her divine Son, by leading souls to give their hearts with hers completely into the Sacred Heart of Jesus. She will continue to speak to our hearts as she spoke to the hearts of the wine stewards at Cana. Do whatever he tells you. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.